0: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
1: Hello, good morning. Welcome to The Michael Reid Show. This is Ken Murray sitting in from Michael Reid. Michael will be back with you next week. We have a busy program between now and 11 a.m. this morning. And if you want to get in touch, the LMFM text WhatsApp number is 86 658 Now let's begin with what was the big story across the pond yesterday, and it was the I suppose the almost coronation of Rishi Sunak as the new British Prime Minister. The UK is getting its fifth PM in six years. Things are a little bit chaotic over there, but there's a hope and expectation that the um, appointment of Rishi Sunak as the new PM will steady the ship and that uh, outstanding matters in the north of Ireland can be addressed. And those outstanding matters relate, of course, to the Northern Ireland Protocol – The fact that the DUP won't sit in the Assembly with Sinn Féin until they uh, get their way on the protocol itself. They want it scrapped, but nobody, it seems, has come up so far with a better suggestion. One man who, of course, is keeping a very close eye on uh, matters across the way and the implications for the North is the Fine Gael spokesperson on Brexit, Neil Richmond, and he joins me on the line right now. So, first of all, Neil, uh, Rishi Sunak is regarded as somebody who voted for the UK to leave the European Union, and that suggests that he is a, a hardline Brexiteer What concerns do you have that uh, Rishi Sunak will be more sympathetic to the DUP position than the uh, position being taken by the Irish government in any talks that uh, take place in the coming weeks?
2: Well, Ken, all the concerns are still valid. Now, whilst Rishi Sunak was a Brexit he wasn't one of those rabid Brexit hearers that were in the European Research Group with the so-called Spartans. He was a passive Brexit and certainly in the last number of months when the Northern Irish Protocol Bill was being put through the House of Commons, he would have been a calming voice in the Cabinet. So there is an element of hope that he's pragmatic, he wants to get a deal done, and he's very well aware that the UK is facing major challenges, Indeed, the, the, the world is facing major challenges, but acutely in the UK in relation to cost of living, the energy crisis and the impact of the war in Ukraine. So there is certainly a hope um, that we can take but genuinely has been a warming of relations over the last couple of weeks and months and put that into a renewed effort um, to iron out a deal on the implementation of the post-Brexit Protocol. Talks have resumed. They've resumed for the first time since February. Let's hope that we can pick up momentum and get something over the line and indeed it's now up to the DUP to do they want to, to make a decision, do they want to continue to sit outside the tent or get inside the tent and represent the people that elected them.
1: You are writing in the Irish Independent uh, today and you basically, I suppose to, to be blunt about it, you're sort of having a go at Steve Baker. Steve Baker said on Sky News at the weekend, and I should explain that uh, Steve Baker is a junior minister in the Northern Ireland office. He effectively said that the EU uh, involvement in the north of Ireland, i.e. the Northern Ireland protocol, cannot continue. And he goes on to say that uh, there will be no celebration of the 25th anniversary of the peace agreement next april due to issues with the northern ireland protocol and you make the point that you know here we have a case of steve baker moving one step forward but the process is moving two steps backwards so when you hear rhetoric like this uh, how much of a concern is this
2: Yeah, it's very deflating. I actually had the chance to meet Steve Baker yesterday in Calvin at the British Irish Parliamentary Assembly. Um, I put it to him quite bluntly, both from the floor of our meeting, but also when we discussed it and privately, that if he was serious about a deal, that he needs to cast aside all this rhetoric that the likes of him and he is a hardcore Brexiter a former chair of the European Research Group need to cast aside that and be serious about what the responsibilities he has as Minister for Northern Ireland of course will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement when it comes about regardless of what is happening because every day since the Good Friday Agreement has been so much better than the dark days of the troubles that went before but certainly there is this notion and this line that there should be no role for the European Court of Justice or European legislation Northern Ireland. It goes straight against the international agreement that this British government negotiated, that this British government, including Steve Baker, voted for allowing Northern Ireland to have the continued full access to the European single market. Something that is so important, not just to the businesses and people of Northern Ireland, but ensures that that there's no hardening of the invisible border on our island. But of course, if you want full access to the single market, then of course you have to apply the rules of the single market. So we do need a heavy dose of realism from this British government. We need the Rhetoric put aside, there is an opportunity, the EU has come to the table repeatedly uh, for the past year with suggestions, with solutions to the problems in relation to implementation, commonsensical solutions. But we need British government ministers to put aside the rhetoric and actually sit down, assume their responsibilities both to the Good Friday Agreement and indeed to the international agreement on Brexit that they themselves negotiated and passed.
1: Would you accept uh, what is a a growing belief that the DUP won't, if you like, sit in the Assembly? Uh, They're claiming it's because they want the uh, issues with the protocol addressed, but the growing belief is it's more to do with the fact that Sinn Féin are now on top and some of the hardliners in the DUP just can't accept that. Would you you go along with that thinking?
2: That's certainly a school of thought that has a relevance of truth. Um, the DUP themselves will say that they want the protocol sorted. The DUP, of course, the party in Northern Ireland that pushed Brexit the hardest, but they themselves have never come up with a single solution um, to the problems that Brexit cause. Calls, um, calls. And I'd be... A little bit reticent to think that uh, the DUP can get a win here. There's plenty of opportunities to get the executive back up and running, to work for the people of Northern Ireland, to mitigate the damage that Brexit is being, that is, Brexit is causing to everyone in this island, but particularly in Northern Ireland. And I certainly feel that the DUP's continued intr- intransigence goes much deeper than the issue of the protocol. Yes, it has an issue with the fact that a nationalist first minister um, should be appointed now as well as so much else in relation to the internal mechanics in Northern Ireland. It's it's quite depressing, but if we truly are and will celebrate the, uh, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, the best way to do it is with a fully functioning executive uh, embracing all the institutions of all three strands of that agreement.
1: Yeah, one idea being floated in the last few months to try and get around uh, the Northern Ireland uh, protocol conundrum uh, is this idea that goods and Entering the north from Britain uh, would go through a green channel. In other words, the trucks would drive straight in, but uh, goods entering Northern Ireland en route to the Republic would go through a red channel. Is that the, the possible compromise that could uh, break the logjam here?
2: Well, it needs to be a detailed compromise. And yes, that's the British government proposal. The European Commission have come forward with a sort of a fast track but in order to put that in place we need to see the British government um, sharing real-time data on what exactly is coming in but also establishing genuine agreements on standards of all goods going in. The easiest way to achieve the stand to resolve the issues of the implementation of the protocol is for an EU-UK veterinary or SPS phytosanitary agreement. That removes the need for 85% of cheques overnight. Um, there is absolutely an opportunity to have fast lanes or green lanes but in order to achieve that we need a lot more detail um, from the British government and it's simply not good enough to give a half-baked idea. If you want to have changes to this implementations protocol they have to be detailed and they have to ensure the continuing uh, security of the European single market but also making sure that there's no need for any border on the island of Ireland.
1: Um, if Rishi Sudak does not appoint a new Northern Ireland Secretary of State by Friday. The existing Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris, is expected to announce on Thursday night, Friday morning, a date for an election to the Assembly sometime around the 15th of December. Uh, knowing the way the DUP operate, surely the whole process would be a waste of time. Because come the sixteenth of December, the DUP may say, "No, we're still not going back into the assembly because the issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol have not been resolved." Isn't that the uh, the tricky dilemma that the British government finds itself in?
2: Absolutely, and you know, if an election were to be held, it would cost the people of Northern Ireland six and a half billion pounds that they don't have. To be honest and it would probably give us the exact same result. The legislation is clear. There is a bit of leeway for any Secretary of State of Northern Ireland, but the incumbent, for however much longer he's there, has said he's in, he intends to call an election on midnight Thursday or just uh, into Friday morning. And... Um, I don't see how that necessarily benefits the people in Northern Ireland. There is an opportunity to form an executive now. There is an opportunity for the DUP and unionists more widely to have their voice clearly heard by the British government, Irish government and European Commission. Let's strengthen um, the, the ways they can have their voice heard. But that's never going to happen if they continue to sit out. And as Edwin Poot say, well, let's just have elections every six months.
1: Neil, I want to move on to the Ukrainian refugee uh, crisis. Uh, The cabinet subcommittee of the cabinet met last night and came up with some proposals, and one of them is a call to local authorities to issue a request to owners of properties that have been vacant to basically make themselves known. Work will be done, and that will house the influx of... uh, Refugees coming in from Ukraine and indeed beyond. um Haven't we reached a point where we now have a situation where simply the state, in real terms, cannot take any more refugees? And even though the Taoiseach says we have a legal and a moral obligation, I mean, it just simply can't continue. We're almost at, to, to use the phrase, saturation point.
2: No, I disagree with that, Ken. I think we absolutely can and we have a responsibility to accommodate people fleeing from uh, an absolutely brutal war in Ukraine, that is our responsibilities and we are bound by that. The only way to say we're not taking any more would be to leave the European Union and suspend ourselves from the UN Charter for Human Rights. That's just something we're not going to do um, as a modern liberal democracy who believe in our responsibilities to the world. But crucially, we're not at saturation point. The Irish people have done an awful lot so far. We've taken in uh, over 50,000 refugees, 1% of our population. We see 50 in primary and secondary education, 5,000 in further education, 10,000 in the workplace. But we do need a renewed effort to find additional and increased accommodation. And that's why we'll see the, the grant for people who are taking in refugees increase from 400 euro to 800 euro, a huge emphasis on local authorities to make um, vacant properties available, All, but also the rapid construction of modular housing um, for not just Ukrainian refugees, but more refugees more generally. In addition, overnight we've seen a new facility has been uh, constructed at Dublin Airport for the processing. This is a massive undertaking. We have never had this level of internal migration into our state in our history. We've had much greater levels of external migration and our history is a, a dotted picture of that. But we can absolutely manage this challenge. We see how other European countries are also um, dealing this. You know, we look at Poland where they're taking multiple million Uh, refugees in on their border and I think we can achieve that but it is going to be difficult but it is the right thing to do and we see the plans that have been updated last night at the cabinet subcommittee will be implemented rapidly.
1: OK, it's a story we'll be returning to over and over in the coming days and weeks. We'll leave it there. That's uh, Neil Richmond, who is the Fine Gael spokesperson on Brexit. OK, we'll take a break.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM.
1: According to recent figures, one in four children is overweight in Ireland, but the number of children overweight or obese in disadvantaged areas is 7% higher than in other areas. And those figures come as new guidelines will be launched today for obesity treatment in a bid to move away from the eat less move more mindset amongst healthcare professionals. Now the new adult clinical practice guidelines will see obesity recognised as a chronic complex disease caused by health impairment as opposed to being seen as a lifestyle illness. Well to discuss this further I'm joined on the line by Dr Cathy Breen who is chair of the Association for the Study of Obesity on the Island of Ireland. Uh, Cathy can I ask you first of all how prevalent is Obesity overall across all age categories in this country.
4: Hi, Ken. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me on this morning. Um, I, I suppose uh, if, if we look at the statistics uh, in, in Ireland again, there a lot of those statistics are based on body mass index, and they will show probably that about about two thirds of people have overweight, and about a quarter of people have obesity. However, um, as we're we're trying to redefine in the new guidelines today, body mass index isn't actually a good measure of obesity at an individual level. So one of the things we're we're looking at in these new guidelines is, is really redefining how we think about obesity and linking it to health complications, not body size or body weight. Um, and hopefully the other thing that will come from that is that we're we're refocusing on how we treat obesity so that we're not just focusing on weight loss alone but also considering how weight can affect function and health and and other health outcomes
1: Is obesity genetically driven or is it just pure gluttony that we just uh, constantly eat soft sugary things that make us overweight or what exactly is behind it?
4: Yeah, so there's the, I suppose the science has moved on a lot and, and the new guidelines are really um, I suppose following the science there. There's a strong genetic element to obesity. Um, we know that, uh, you know, it, it certainly if, if a family member has obesity, people are, are more likely to develop obesity. So there's a str- strong genetic component. It is influenced by environmental factors as well. But I suppose on an individual basis, what we found is that regardless of the drivers, people are, are met with the same message of eat less, move more. And we now know that that's not an appropriate treatment for obesity. Um, obesity is like any other chronic disease and we need to treat it as such. And, and that's certainly what these, these guidelines are calling for, that we consider the individual or can health impairment they have, their genetic predisposition, and then offer treatments that actually treat obesity um, and they would involve medical nutrition therapy, physical activity, psychological interventions, pharmacotherapy and bariatric surgery. So really, no one size fits all when it comes to treatment. It's about individualizing that treatment to, to the person.
1: I want to talk to you about stigma because uh, mm. some people are, if you like, prone to making uh, derogatory remarks about people who are overweight and Um, It can affect people's confidence. It's bad enough for some people who are fighting the the issue. But when other people make derogatory comments, it can have uh, detrimental effects on their confidence. Uh, Talk us through that problem and how um, it discourages people from, if you like, addressing the problem and the psychological impact it has on individuals and families.
4: Absolutely. I mean, obesity is, a very highly stigmatized disease. And, and most people who live with obesity are shamed and blamed for their condition. And there's been, I suppose, decades of really ingrained bias against people of a certain size in public, uh, in media, in, among healthcare providers. Um, and it has devastating psychological effects on people who live with obesity. And, and really from, I suppose, a healthcare professional point of view, we, we would argue that it's it's one of the things that has really held back the treatment of obesity as a disease because there's such a poor understanding it's seen as a lifestyle disease or or, or related to um how people eat or, or not being active enough but actually it's, it's far more complex than that and now that we understand the science we're, we're really hoping that that will i suppose drive some of the reduction in stigma one of the um the interesting things this suppose, when we talk about stigma is that we we have an entire chapter in these guidelines dedicated to stigma which is really unusual in clinical guidelines which which will normally just focus on the treatments um, but on our website today you, you can check out that chapter and it does talk I suppose in, in a lot of detail about the negative consequences of, of weight stigma and we hope it's something that opens up a, a national conversation on this and and moves that on. Well
1: new guidelines are being launched today to if you like tackle obesity what are those guidelines?
4: So the guidelines, um, there's 18 chapters or 18 topics covered in the guidelines. One of the first chapters, as I said, is, is stigma and, and looking at how we can reduce weight stigma. But some of the other topics also cover how we appropriately assess and diagnose obesity and then how we treat obesity. So from, from nutrition through to pharmacotherapy and surgery. So the guidelines are going to give guidance I suppose, to healthcare professionals on how you deliver good evidence-based care to people living with obesity. And also, I suppose, for people who do live with obesity, they have some information on what you should expect from your healthcare provider in terms of of being able to go and, and, and look for help if you live with this disease.
1: Can I put it to you that launching a book of guidelines is all very well and fine, but unless the government engages in some sort of a public awareness campaign through advertising and what's called uh, infomercials, basically giving good advice uh, on how to eat and how uh, to avoid certain foods, that the guidelines in one respect are pointless unless the government makes a commitment on the public awareness campaign otherwise. Would you accept that?
4: So I, I think what you're talking about really is obesity prevention. So public health campaigns um, around maybe health behaviours have some value around, around perhaps preventing obesity and preventing all chronic diseases or, or reducing the risk of developing them. However, when it comes to treating a disease, we need much more than advising people to, to eat less and move more. That just doesn't put the mustard, I suppose, anymore um, one, one of the things we're very hopeful for, for with these guidelines, and you mentioned resourcing, is that just um, last year, 2021, the agency did publish a model of care for how we should manage and treat obesity in Ireland. And that does define how the, the, the where, where the condition should be, should be managed across primary care and hospitals. And resourcing is coming for some of those services. And what we hope the guidelines will do to fit in well with that is to give some guidance to those new teams that are being set up uh, to standardise care across the country.
1: OK, Kathy, we're going to leave it there. So a little warning there. Be careful what you eat because uh, obesity in the end can kill some people. But uh, those new guidelines uh, are out today and hopefully it'll bring about uh, the creation of a more healthy nation. We have more to come. We'll take a break. Michael,
3: Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM.
1: Now, there are lots of families listening to this uh, very programme who uh, have themselves in a situation where mum or dad are in a nursing home or else they're getting care at home. And the whole issue of the prevention. Vision of care and the cost of care is a looming problem as Ireland's ageing population moves on in years, and for some families it is a serious difficulty. Emma Dowling is assistant professor at the University of Vienna, and she's also the author of the book The Care Crisis What Caused It and How We End It, and she joins me in studio now. Thanks very much indeed, Emma, for, for popping in. Uh, first of all, the, the, the care crisis how serious of an issue is this for families, not only in Ireland but indeed right across Europe? Europe.
5: It's a very serious issue because for a really long time, actually, the care crisis and the problems with accessing care, but also the conditions under which people are providing care have been quite invisible. And I think with the pandemic, we uh, we saw what the issues actually are and how the problems are quite deep seated. And so I think for many people, it is really quite a serious struggle. And so what I tried to do in the books that I've written is to draw that together and show what are actually some of the causes of those problems, both in terms of accessing care. Care, paying for care and doing the work of caring and one of the central issues there is actually that a lot of the, the care work is done under difficult conditions but also caring is done across a sort of spectrum of society both in a kind of paid context and an unpaid context as well and particularly the unpaid work of caring is very much invisible because often it's not considered um, to be work and it's it's invisible and it's taken for granted.
1: Indeed it's a, it's a common complaint that home carers do so much work work that uh, they provide a service for the state but the state doesn't recognize what they do in the in the home is this a problem right across Europe, or is it a case that it varies from one country to another?
5: Well, I think there are different contexts in different countries, but all in all, I think because um, different countries are facing sort of similar issues with regards to um, uh, demographic change. So, aging society is one is one thing, but also that there have been uh, pressures on the on the welfare and care system because of cuts and austerity measures and uh, the ways in which tax. Uh, systems have changed and so there are also less resources to pay for uh, to pay for care and another issue is also that um, with a move towards the marketization of care they also have the problem that this is putting care systems under pressure as well because of the way that um, the attempts are made to render care profitable and that is actually also part of the problem
1: yeah i think the average cost of care in a nursing home in this country it can vary from between a thousand euro a week to 1500 euro a week How does the Irish care system compare with other countries, particularly Scandinavia, where they seem to have, well, what seems to be a fairer system?
5: Um, well, I'm not an expert on the Irish system, but what I can say um, more generally is we have we have a couple of different uh, systems in Europe. So one system, like the can- Scandinavian model, is uh, based on the idea of um, sort of equal access to public services and public services also funded through a taxation system. You have the system in Germany or Austria, which um, is actually based more on um, uh, employees paying part of um, uh, like health care out of their... Um, out of their wages and that this this um, pays for their health care um, and then you have also systems like Britain um, where you have a um, national health care service but you have social care in the hands of the local authorities that have actually faced quite significant cuts uh, over the last 10 years so they find themselves in a situation where they're not able to provide social care and the other thing I think that is uh, important here that countries like Britain I think Ireland might be quite similar here is that there is quite a strong onus on the individual either on the individual themselves or individual families to cover the costs of care and this is a sort of increasing thing that's happening so that it's actually not something that is considered to be um, a collective responsibility but the onus is on the individual and that's a trend that's happening everywhere but I think in in some countries it's much more uh, far uh, advanced in others and this is a problem because everybody needs care and actually you can't really individualize a care infrastructure.
1: Sure. I don't know if you're familiar with the fair deal scheme we have here. Basically, uh, if somebody goes into care, uh, the family home may have to be sold uh, to part fund uh, the cost of care. And I'm just curious from your studies around Europe, uh, how the provision of care in this country compares to other countries. Are we up there with the best? Are we at the bottom? Are we mid table or have you made any comparisons?
5: I myself haven't uh, undertaken country comparisons, but there are country comparisons. And I would say that in Ireland, like in other countries, there are uh, things that need to be done in order to improve the situation for people so that they don't have to fear uh, and that they have to uh, sell their houses and that actually a kind of public investment in um, in care and an um, expansion of a public infrastructure would actually be uh, something that would make care available for everybody on a more equitable basis. And that's something that... Uh, Lots of countries in in Europe are are facing, and that's I think where the where the debate is at is the sort of whether we're going to go in the direction of it being more and more personal responsibility, which means you have people who are wealthy enough to pay for their care or are able to do so, and others um or others are not, and so they end up having to do the work themselves or having to go without. Or do we actually have um an infrastructure where um we collectively make sure that there are enough funds for everybody, um, and that this is something that is done on the basis of public invest as opposed to um, a privatised service.
1: Uh, compared to, if you like, uh, public care and private care, has privatisation been good or bad for the sector?
5: I'd say on the whole, it's not been good. Um, this is because of the way in which the business models that have been introduced here are uh, not very suited to care. So on the one hand, you might have s- sort of small businesses that are uh, not making huge amounts of profits, but are sort of running um, uh, running care homes or, or home care services on a more cost-based. But what has happened and what we've seen in many countries is that we have large corporations that have entered the sector and are orientated towards making large uh, profits for, for shareholders and require sort of large returns on investment. And also things like private equity uh, models entering the sector that have actually led to a sort of extraction of uh, of financial resources from, from the sector, meaning that um, the the brunt of the, the problem has been borne by uh, um, people who are working in the sector through cuts to wages and working conditions um, the, an increase uh, also um, in in the work that has to be done because there's not enough staff and these are the sort of things that have happened off the back of care workers because of the way that uh, profits have been sought so overall I would say the privatization is not a good idea in the care sector yeah what,
1: what prompted you to write the book and and what sort of reaction did you get
5: um well, what prompted me to write the book, I was writing the book in the context, um, I used to live in London and uh, in Britain, and I was um, there also during a time after 2008, where there were severe austerity measures. And I was seeing the problems with, um, with care uh, due to austerity measures and also due to privatization and what we call financialization. And so I wanted to write a book that makes visible uh, this care crisis, not just in a particular sector, but across different parts of society and sort of connect up the dots um between them and show that something that is so central to our to our lives caring um is being done under such difficult conditions and is also not really attributed much value at all even though it's so essential so i wanted to sort of make visible that paradox and raise the question that something has to be done about it
1: the whole issue of care provision what sort of an impact is this having on we we'll say poor people
5: well, that is precisely the issue because we have a situation at the moment where um, people who are relatively wealthy can uh, have the funds often not uh, you know um not infinitely, but they have the funds to to pay for care, where, whereas poorer people um, don't necessarily have those funds and end up in a situation where they can't access care. They have to do the the um, the care work themselves. So there's a sort of double, uh, double or tri- triple burden actually for for people who um, are on lower incomes. Or and the other thing is also that care work itself, because it has such little value, is often also something that is that is undertaken by. People People who have don't have very much bargaining power in the in the labour market. So that's another issue I think here, where we see actually those people who are doing uh, the caring um, are often um, people who are not allowed to com- uh, not able to command high wages for that, but are also the people who are not being cared for. Yeah.
1: Of the systems you've studied, and very briefly, is there any one particular model that you've said to yourself that's the best one?
5: Well, um, a model I think that is based on um, public infrastructure, public investment in, in care, one that is not orientated towards profit and one where um, there is a, a, an infrastructure in place that everybody can access on the basis of need. I think that is the, the best system.
1: Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Emma Dowling, assistant professor at the University of Vienna, and uh, author of the book *The Care Crisis: What Caused It and How Can We End It*, published last year, and of course uh, available in bookshops and I presume on various online sites. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
3: Michael Reed on on
1: LMFM. Now, the Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke, has announced that the party will bring forward a motion in the Dáil this week to deliver affordable, reliable, and safe public transport. And he says that Sinn Féin has a detailed, fully-costed plan to deliver affordable, reliable and safe public transport across the entire country. This sounds like a very big project indeed. Darren O'Rourke joins me on the line right now. So, Darren, you want uh, a bus, basically, for everybody in the audience. How much is this going to cost?
6: So, we have a a, a proposal there. And actually, the, the, the current government have a plan through what's called the Connecting Ireland Rural, Rural Mobility Plan plan, um, that uh, would see uh, new bus services for every uh, population above 300 people uh, three times a day, seven days a week. Um, and we support that plan, but our criticism of government is that it's not been rolled out quickly enough. Um, so so the plan is a five-year plan, supposed to be a five-year plan. It's to cost €56 million euros but they only allocated in the first year of it, which was this year, 2022, €5 million. Euros. So at, at, at this rate, it would take 10 years to deliver it, whereas what Sinn Féin are saying, as part of a €186.6 million euro package, that we would spend €25 million euro in 2023 and do the same in 2024 to deliver this full and comprehensive plan in uh, in, in, in two more years. So half the time that the, the government are intending to do it and 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 we believe that you know we've we've heard so much about the need to get people out of their cars to get them onto public transport the case is made for social reasons for economic reasons for environmental reasons but more often than not when I hear and they're welcome the fares reductions on public transport I hear people saying to me and my colleagues right across the the country saying well we don't have the service to, to, to access you know so so we need to do two things we need to expand the available services uh, um, that, that are there we need to extend services And we need to to make them uh, affordable as well.
1: Of course, in an ideal world, this is a great idea. But you know that the Green Party won't allow this because more buses means more carbon emissions. And that goes against everything that they stand for. So basically, uh, even though you're going to get a bit of publicity about this plan, uh, it it won't get the go ahead. Isn't that the case?
6: No, it's not the case. And actually, that's, you know, um, uh, uh, more buses is the plan for. Uh, government and opposition who are serious about climate. Mo- you know, so what? What? what the intention is to provide public transport and active transport, so walking and cycling where you can do it, and outside of that, it's to get as many people out.
3: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about... Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
7: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
6: Onto buses and onto rail. So, so, so that's the intention. Um, it's the intention that's committed in in our climate plans. It's uh, it's stated government policy. It's supported by uh, uh, the opposition, but our criticism of government is that they have plans, but they're not matching it with the with the funding, and they're not matching it with the delivery. So a number of of our proposals, that expanded bus network, and we've seen it in in places like uh, Carlinstown. There's a new, a new service that went live on. On uh, on Sunday there, but there was supposed to be a lot more done this year. But the funding wasn't there, and the service delivery wasn't there. So, so we need very many areas that aren't served and made and allowed with bus services. They need to be uh, okay, uh but they need to be provided with, with, sure, with bus services.
1: Sure, Darren. I'm sure there are parents listening in Beliver this morning, and they're pulling their hair out in despair when they hear you calling for uh, a bus service for every village in the land. When in fact they can't even get promised bus services to bring their children to school. So isn't it logical we get the school bus situation sorted out before we even talk about public transport for every man, woman and child in the land?
6: Well, I think we should do both. And actually Sinn Féin is, is, is proposing that we would do both. Um, so so one of the constraints in relation to school bus transport, one is, is the, the the current government and the minister just made an absolute hames of... Of delivering uh, their proposed re- reduced fares, they didn't plan it properly. They certainly didn't execute it properly. Um, there are constraints in terms of the number of of drivers. Um, the government throw their hands up in the air when they talk about talk about that. Actually, Sinn Féin has a number of proposals to address the acute shortage of of drivers in terms of the whole licensing system, ensuring that it's fast-tracked in in, in terms of of the training of drivers, in terms of the terms and conditions of of work for drivers. There's a a couple of points I want to make as well, Ken, in terms of what our proposals would mean for the people of of Mead and Loud that are are quite specific. So there has been a campaign for some time for fairer fares along the, the east coast of Mead to ensure that people in people in Gormanston and in Leytown and in Drogheda who are using the train service get the same sort of fares as they do in North Dublin and Balbriggan Sinn Fein would introduce that we would also fast track the delivery of the Navan rail line that's a commitment from our party leader it's now in black and white in a Doll motion that goes uh, before the Doll tonight um, the the current plan is that that project uh, would begin uh, going through the planning process in about 2031 at the earliest, we would start that process
2: today and well, deliver just, that. Just budget. let me
1: stop you there But the Navan Rail line. I mean, I worked in Leinster House for 17 years and any time I discussed this with TDs, the line I more or less got was that there isn't a snowball's chance in hell of upgrading the Navan rail line to Dublin until the M3 motorway is paid for itself because if people are taking the train from Navan to Dublin they're not paying tolls up at Clon and therefore the taxpayer will have to pay the bill to fund the construction of the M3 so isn't any plan or talk about upgrading the Navan rail line while good in theory, in reality it's not going to happen
6: no, I, I, I disagree. Um, it's, it's not the case. Uh, I think fundamentally this is an issue of political will. Um, there have been plans at different stages to, to deliver a rail line to Navan. There is a commitment there very clearly. We had it in our manifesto in 2020. We have it in in our motions, and now we'll have it have it uh, restated again. On I know, the, but Darren, on, the, on w- the public record, I know. But what
1: Féin want and what the Department of Transport will allow will be two different things.
6: No, I, I believe you know that that all that uh, suggests that the 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 um, that the government of the day don't have authority, and we know that they do have authority. And if they if the political will is there to deliver it, and they put the funding beside it, which is what Sinn Fein would do, it would be delivered. And just on your point in relation to because I've heard it said repeatedly. Um, when I've held public meetings on this issue, that the connection between the bad deal we got on the on the M3 toll, the public-private partnership deal there, that means that people in Kells are told on the double to go to Dublin every day. There is zero relationship between that project and the Navin rail. I specifically asked that question because constituents asked me to, to ask if they had suggested, as you suggested, that there could be no... Uh, uh, Nav and Rail development until the M3 was, was paid for. That isn't the case and the fact that it isn't the case means that there's the opportunity to progress at pace if the political will is there and the funding is there with the Navan Rail Project. And that's the commitment that Sinn Féin is making in the Dáil tonight.
1: So right. To well, if that if that is the case, then, why haven't successive governments... And, you know, we had Noel Dempsey, I think, a Minister for Transport at one stage, who was a TD for the entire county of Mead. We have Damien English, a minister. We have Thomas Byrne, a minister. We have Helen McEntee, a minister. Why is there no urgency to upgrade the line from Navin to Dublin? Because it's a
6: matter of competing interests. It's as simple as that. They they prepared, the current government updated the National Development Plan, which outlined a long list of priority projects. And within those priorities, in fairness, the Navin Rail project is back on the agenda. It was knocked off the agenda. The cost-benefit analysis is done. The case is made. The economic case is made for it. But it's in, it's towards the bottom of a long list of projects. And what Sinn Féin is saying, if we were in government, we would shift it up the priority list.
1: OK, well, we'll have to see what happens. Darren O'Rourke, we could uh, speak at length about uh, the whole provision of public transport across the land, uh, but uh, that motion will be discussed in the Dáil tonight. That's uh, Darren O'Rourke there, Sinn Féin TD for me, The East. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael,
3: Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM.
1: Now, a quarter of all priests currently serving in the Catholic Church in Ireland are set to retire over the next 15 years according to the Association of Catholic Priests. The figure was revealed at the Association's annual general meeting in Athlone, where priests from around the country were told that 547 priests of the 2,100 priests currently working in the Irish Church are aged between 61 and 75, and nearly 300 or 15% of working priests are aged 75 or over. There appears to be a crisis in the Catholic Church and this has serious implications for the Catholic Church's future in this country. I'm joined on the line right now by Father Tim Hayes who is a parish priest of Killer Inch in East Cork. Uh, Father Tim, first of all, you've undertaken a survey to look at the numbers and what exactly are they telling you?
7: Okay, good morning, Ken. Um, Just to give the background of, of the survey, we were contacted by a journalist last year and he wanted to know what were the figures and we didn't know. And the reality is that each individual diocese, 26 diocese, holds its own figures. So we felt it was important. Before you can uh, plan anything, you need the facts. So it was done to present the facts. We weren't, we had no message in it. It was just to show uh, the reality of the situation of the church in Ireland in partaking to the priests' ages and um, breakdown of work, you know. For instance, there's 1,355 parishes. Um, 2,650 churches and mass centers um, we have 50 students for the priesthood at the moment um, studying for the priesthood and under the age of 40 there are 52 priests so <laughs> you wouldn't want to be a genius to see that the current uh, way that the church runs is not sustainable you know, providing masses and all these churches and mass centres going forward if it's left to ordained clergy, we're in. If we were a company, you'd be selling shares at this stage.
1: Sure. The trend suggests that as we move forward, less and less people are taking out apprenticeships to become priests. And this indicates that maybe 10, 15 years down the line... Um the Catholic Church will basically be um less of a force than it currently is, and it's already less of a force than it was twenty years ago. What are the Catholic hierarchy in this country saying about the problem and what needs to be done to address it
7: well no, i wouldn't dare I can't speak for the the hierarchy i wouldn't dare um so I don't know what's in their mind. Uh, a lot of dioceses are reflecting we're having an assembly ourselves coming up shortly of priests only. And as, as, as an association, we think that that conversation should be between all baptized members of the church, that it shouldn't be the clergy or the hierarchy deciding because it's not our church. And if you stood back from the figures, like I would say is that there is a message For us, in in the figures, there's something new coming. The church has changed hugely in the past. I often quote, I come from a, um, a townland along the River Blackwater in North Cork, and there was an old Augustinian priory, just less than a mile from where I grew up. And for 600 years, it was the center of prayer and worship, and people came to it. And it it was before the suppression of the monasteries, but it closed, and something new came. So I think change is happening. I think God is giving us a message that we need to reflect on the way we function, our structures, all of that. And it's, it's very opportunistic that the Synod is going on. This, the Pope Francis called for the Church throughout the world. And some very strong messages have come in the Synod. And one of the ones is that People are not happy the way that power is um, done in the church. That people should be part, you know, the baptized all should be part of decision making. For instance, in, in our diocese, on one occasion, lately, uh, one parish, one Sunday the priest stood up and said, this is my last Sunday in the parish. And he was withdrawn from the parish. That was the first the people ever knew about it. You know, it's the fear, I'd say, of every parish that's going to happen, but I think we, it's not easy engaging on difficult issues like that. Another one is, in the Synod, people said that women being excluded from ordained ministry is not acceptable anymore. We have to look at that. We have to well, engage. It, it, For some people, they find that objectionable. But I think mean, Jesus came to bring the good news. He didn't come and say women must not be ordained.
1: Well, so on that very do. point, would you accept the uh, well the fact that the Catholic Church, and this is not a criticism of the Catholic Church in okay. Ireland, this is, uh, if you like, having a go at Rome, that in fact it's actually one of the most sexist organisations on planet Earth. It treats women as second-class citizens. And the fact that priests, for example, are not allowed to marry has discouraged a lot of good men signing up as apprentice priests. Would you accept that?
7: Well, I think, some of our practices are uh, archaic, and especially in relation to women in, in the church, I would. That's a fact. Like, what, what girl or woman would want to join an organization where they're excluded from the leadership or ministry? What, and, like, that's the, that's the learning we need to take from the world today. We need to listen to that, and that is a fact you know, people just it's, it's archaic
1: Well, and I suppose the, the, the ultimate question is um, are the hierarchy in Rome listening to the concerns of the Irish Church?
7: Well, I think the Synod is, 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 is an attempt at that and it's Pope Francis, it's coming from the very top now, he's finding that there are a lot of people in opposition and are trying to block it and that's happening in Ireland as well They're trying to discredit it and to say it's not representative because they're fearful of change. And I suppose their opinions um, go against um, the traditional thing. And I can see Pope Francis is a huge problem because how people in Ireland think differs from how people in South America think and how people in Africa think. So he's trying to hold together all those viewpoints and find a, a common ground and a new way forward for the church. And that's not easy. The last thing he wants is a schism for the church to to break apart and we have a separate church. It happened before and he's trying to hold out against that. People. Some people want him to change right now and it's not that easy.
0: And
1: also in Ireland we have a situation where on the island uh, members of the various Protestant faiths are allowed to marry but they're not no. allowed to marry... Uh, in the Catholic Church, and uh, to some Protestants north of the border, some, not all, but some, mm. they look south and they see, in some ways, a backward state that is not moving forward with the times in the area of religious practice, and this is one of the key areas, not allowing women priests and not allowing priests to marry. Aren't these two key issues that are damaging to, if you like, the country overall, and is holding back an element of reconciliation that is badly needed on this island.
7: Right. Well, there's a, there's a kind of a contradiction in it as well, in that uh, some Protestant priests who oppose the ordination of women as bishops have joined the Catholic Church because of it. because They oppose it. And, and they are married, and they... They they become Catholic priests and stay with their wives as workers. So we have married clergy. But there are are men who changed from being ordained Protestant ministers. So that's a contradiction as well. Then you could have a fellow leaving a parish because he falls in love, and a married priest comes in and replaces him, you know? Sure. But let me. Anomalies there and. Um, Let me
1: put this other question to you, Tim. Would you accept that the Catholic Church is, if you like, its own worst enemy in that the scandals about uh, child abuse Mm. uh, that emerged in the 1990s in particular has effectively discouraged a lot of good men joining up to join the priesthood because they see an institution that has been perceived by many as being hypocritical. We've had priests on altars, priests on pulpits, lecturing to the plain people of Ireland, don't do this and don't do that. And while Mm -hmm. they were lecturing, they were misbehaving themselves. Do you think that has done damage to the image of the church in this country?
7: Well, again, the synod, it came out strongly in the synod that the damage done by the scandals Um, has been huge and we don't not to brush it over that it needs to be acknowledged and I think most people would acknowledge it um, but I think there's another side to it too you know like we could look at all the negatives I I, I just think of what happened to Chrysler in Donegal uh, just a few weeks ago and the priest there and how he brought the community together I think I think the value and the goodness, like we, we try to represent priests who are trying to do their best. And like when you look at their fellows over 75 years of age and they're still working up to their 80s because they love doing their job and, and I suppose they believe in what they're doing and try to represent Christ in their communities for people. So I would, I, I acknowledge that what the scandals have done, but um, I. I had a a wonderful saying recently that um, a falling tree in the forest makes more noise than all the others. Uh, Sure,
1: and we I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of priests are all good men with good intentions and they mean well, but as you say yourself, one or two bad apples gets the whole bunch a a, a bad name. But of course, the the Catholic Church has not covered itself in glory in the way it handled uh, these scandals. But uh, what I'm trying to get at here Mm. is that the Church um, has got itself um, a damaged reputation. This has discouraged Mm. a lot of people from joining the priesthood. But do you accept as well that we're living now in a world where young men in particular, you know, the the life of a priest doesn't appeal to them. There's no big salary. Uh, there isn't always a, a company car. It's not always Monday to Friday, nine to five, and that, if you like, the attractions of the modern-day workplace uh, don't fit in with what the church has to offer. Is that a problem?
7: It is an issue... You know, we've become a very secular, materialistic world. And that's, that's people's choice. That's the way, it, the way it is. But that's a great gift in the life of a priest as well. Like We, we share in people's happy moments, in their sad moments, and there's a great value. I would say like that a priest is a sacramental sign, you know, a sign of Christ in the community. And uh, it, that's a great gift. Like I'm 40... I'm my 41st year as a priest, and I, I love my work, and I believe in it, and I think there is a need for that sacramental sign. Now, it's going to be different. It mightn't be a man, an ordained minister in a parish, but it will be something else. I work with fantastic people here in the parish with great faith, and they are more than, mostly women, and they are more than capable and are strong faith people so and that's church as well like i think what was, i'm saying ken is that the old is dying
1: sure and, and they're not being replaced at the bottom end um
7: and, but we're, we're trying to uphold the old system
1: sure.
0: and
7: our survey i think what it's saying is that it's we can't do it like it's with those figures 50 in studying for the priesthood and 2650 church and mass centers.
1: Okay, well, just just we're up against the clock here, Father okay. Tim. But let me put this question to you: What does Rome need to do to address this crisis? Because the implications are that if they turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to this problem, twenty years down the line, there may be no priests in this country at all. So, what needs to be done to address the crisis?
7: Well, I'll only go with what the association, what we believe in, and that is that. The synodal process, which has come from Pope Francis, is showing us a way forward. We need to trust that. We don't know what the answer is yet, but if we listen to, uh, to each other and listen to what God is telling us, some way forward will come. It has come in the past, and it, it's going to be new, it's going to be different, it's going to challenge us, but we need to be open to whatever that is.
1: Thanks very much. That's uh, Father Tim Hazelwood there, parish priest of Kille-Inchon in County, Cork, who spoke to me earlier about the crisis in the Catholic Church in this country with the difficulty in attracting young men into the priesthood. More to come. We'll take a break.
3: Michael, Michael Reid on LMFM.
1: Now, the family of uh, Gavin McShane, who was murdered by the UVF on May the 18th, 1994, have met with uh, officials in the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin in relation to the killing of Gavin. He was 17 years of age when he was gunned down along with his friend Shane McCardle, also 17 by an unmasked loyalist gunman. Now the boys had been students at Armagh College they were big into the GAA and it seems they were murdered simply because they were Catholic. The family are basically seeking answers. I can tell you they are not alone. There are lots of families looking for answers but this is a particularly disturbing case. Alana McShane who is a sister of the late Gavin, and uh, Caitlin Hughes, who's Alana's daughter, join me on the line right now. Alana, thanks for taking our call. First of all, can you tell us what happened on May the 18th,
8: 1994?
9: Yes. Um, that morning, Gavin had missed the bus to school, so Daddy decided to drive him down to college. Um, on arrival, he... Um, had met with his friend Shane McYardle. They had a free class and decided to walk up to up the town to meet friends in a taxi rank, and it was called A to B Taxis. Uh, they were playing a video game in the waiting area, and the other students had to go back to college. Uh, they had a class that started at 11 o'clock, so Gavin and Shane decided to stay and play on at the computer game, which was a wee golfing game. Um, neither both of the boys had ever been in the taxi rank before. Um, so they didn't have to be back in class till 11.30. Um, the taxi rank is located in a busy street, and it was in a Catholic area. And at around 10:50, um, just minutes after the other students had left and go back to class, uh, a, a male had entered the taxi rank uh, with a hand on and he had no mask on. Um, he shot um, behind the taxi. He shot the ta- uh, at the taxi rank or taxi worker. And injured him and then he torn the gun on Gavin and Shane um, and shot both the boys in the head at Point Blank Range and Gavin died instantly. Uh, This gunman um, is a born again Christian and he works in the Port Down area with young children and he preaches in the Island Church. This gunman has murdered over 30 people, which is mostly young children and a pregnant woman. He is an MI5 agent and is protected by the state and still to
7: this day.
1: I'll come to that in a second, but uh, as I recall... This story is particularly poignant because uh, when your mum was pregnant uh, carrying Gavin, she was caught up in a terrorist incident herself. Tell me about that.
8: That's
9: right. So, in the 16th of August, 1976, mummy um, was meeting with uh, friends and they were heading to a pub, local pub in the town. Um when she arrived, they had passed a, a car, and she noticed two two men sitting in the car, and one of them had uh, kneeled down, but you know, had um, was leaning forward in the car, and the other one was laughing. So, Mummy we went on into the bar and ordered a drink with her friend, and then uh, an explosion had went off, and she was badly injured in the attack and she um had a lot of head injuries and she had actually lost her left eye. Uh, two people were killed that day. and um, a woman called Betty McDonald and a young man called Jared McLean. Um Mummy was pregnant with Gavin. So she was and like, thankfully, she went on ahead to deliver a healthy baby. Um, growing up, she never told us that she was in the explosion. Um, oh, sorry, it was the Glenanne gang that was um, had had done the done the bomb. But Mummy had never told us that she was in an explosion. Uh, she always just said that she fell and heard her eye it was when Gavin was murdered that we realised that mummy had lost her eye in an explosion so that the troubles had hit our home twice um, we were never worried to till, till know anything about the troubles mummy sort of isolated us from us and sure. um,
1: I should point out, by the way, that the Glenan gang was a UVF gang that operated in South Armagh and had the protection of the British Army, the OUC and the British Security Services. And uh, the Dlenan gang uh, were involved in the Miami Showband massacre. They were also uh, involved in the Dublin Monaghan bombings. And uh, a book I'm currently working on about the Revy killings happened in South Armagh. And the Dlenan gang uh, were instrumental in that atrocity as well. Now, can I ask you, uh, in terms of trying to get answers from the British state, what have you done and are you making any progress at all in trying to find out who exactly murdered, or more to the point, you know who murdered, uh, but why there isn't any prosecutions.
9: Yeah, I'm actually going to let Caitlin answer this
1: one for you. Sure. Caitlin is your daughter, yeah. So, Caitlin, if you can can talk us through what what the family have done uh, to try and find out why there have been no um, arrests or prosecutions uh, in relation to this killing.
8: Um, Yeah, well... The police have covered up multiple murders, like not just our family, but have helped protect a load of people. Um, and I suppose if this new legacy bill comes in, nobody's going to get justice. Um, it's it's hard it's hard to talk about like the state It's going against the Good Friday Agreement, so it would be bringing in one legacy just to. break another policy so the world like it would be going against the good friday agreement
1: sure but but what i'm trying to establish from you here is in terms of who you've approached uh, either in the british state or in the irish state and what responses you've received
8: um well we've tried a lot of things it's all been shut down you know um but meeting with the government, was, it's been it's been hard to get the right answers that we're actually looking for.
1: So basically, nobody is cooperating with you. Um, you met officials in the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin this week. What did they say to you?
8: And um, they said they're going to try their best to help um, try and push it forward. Um, maybe let's become like, our path to the new bill that's coming out and, and protect just
1: Alana, if I can come back to you, um, would you accept, and I've, I've, I suppose, learned this from looking at the Revy family uh, killings, that what the British are doing is they are playing the long game. They are hoping that a certain generation of people who are seeking answers will eventually die, and that the next generation of people won't be as less angry and determined to get answers. And that's the way the British are playing it. Would you accept that?
9: Um, No, because my daughter Caitlin she wasn't born at the time that um, Gavin was murdered and um, like it is triggering down through other uh, family members that they want to find out the truth what happened Gavin and so I think even if they do bring this in like uh, other generations are going to still try and continue like my mummy died Um, six months ago from a battle of cancer which I had for four years and it was mummy that campaigned for 28 years and then myself and my brother Keon continued to do it and now Caitlin so it doesn't matter what they try and do other generations is gonna come on board you know and and try and get the truth as well.
1: Sure. Can I ask you, in terms of your legal options, um, what are you doing in terms of taking the Ministry of Defence and the PSNI stroke or you uh, see to court in trying to establish why exactly there have been no uh, arrests or prosecutions in this case?
8: Um, yeah, we're actually we've tried to take them to court. Uh, there was actually a um, ordered there a few months ago um, but it just takes so much time and they seem to always put it off
1: So the British are engaging in a delaying tactic Yeah. and this is obviously designed to frustrate your attempts to get answers as much as possible would that be the case?
8: Yeah and it's just to try to put people off, like if they keep delaying us to, to think that we're not going to keep trying
1: that if they keep trying to shut us down, that we'll just give up, but we won't. Sure. Okay. Well, look, uh, Caitlin and Alana, thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. We wish you well. We know you're not alone. As I say, there's the uh, Miami Showband victims, there's the Loughan Island tragedy, there's the Dublin Monaghan bombings, the Turbid car bombs, and, of course, the Revy killings in South Armagh. Lots of people looking for answers from the British... And it seems the British are playing hard to get on this one. That's uh, Alana McShane uh, on the line there from our ma and her daughter, Caitlin Hughes. More to come. We'll take a break.
3: Michael, Michael Reed Reid on LMFM. Right,
1: it's that time of the week where we go to the Loud Me the Crime Desk, and I'm joined in studio this morning by Garda, Sharon White of The Garda Station. So let's begin. First of all, Sharon, with a burglary in Athboy. Good
10: morning, Ken. Yes, we're going to Athboy. It was on the 18th of October at 8:20 p.m. Two suspects forced the rear kitchen window of a house at Park View, Athboy, in County Meath. The number A number of rooms were ransacked and the suspects left with a small amount of cash. The alarm was activated and the suspects fled then on foot. Some CCTV has been gathered and house-to-house inquiries are being conducted. And Gardaí have established that there were two suspects and they were actually seen in the Meadowlands estate after this burglary occurred. So if you have any information about this crime, please contact my uh, colleagues in Kells Garda Station.
1: OK, and there was also a burglary in Dunboyne.
10: That's right, this was the 19th of October and it happened between 9am and 5pm at a garage at the rear of a house on Maynooth Road in Dunboyne. The garage was broken into and a large amount of gardening equipment was actually taken. Gardaí are currently conducting inquiries, and they have established that the suspects actually came through adjacent fields into the back of the property. There's no description of the vehicle which has been used, but if you did see anything unusual around the Maynooth Road in Dunboyne, please contact Ashburn Garda Station with your information.
1: Now there was what's uh, referred to in the trade uh, in the in the policing trade I believe uh, as a, a distraction burglary in Omeath.
10: That's right actually there are a few of these happening, so we just want to point it out to uh, your listeners. Um, this one actually happened on the 19th of October again and it was at 9.30am when two men approached an elderly resident at a house in Knocknagoran in Omeath in County Louth. The two suspects were invited in actually by the homeowner and one male suspect distracted the homeowner while the second one went and searched the house and found just a small amount of cash. The suspects, they didn't use any force to enter the house and they were wearing medical masks and caps. So any information about this and we would ask you to contact Dundalk Garda Station. But as per previous advice in relation to these distraction burglaries, we just want to highlight Never let anybody into your house unless you're absolutely certain to their ID. And if you are in doubt, lock the doors and ring 999.
1: Okay, back to Athboy, uh, another burglary and indeed a theft.
10: That's right. This was the 23rd of October. Uh, A homeowner on the Trim Road in Athboy awoke to find that her vehicle, a blue Skoda Fabia, was missing from the rear of her house. The suspect had actually entered the house through an unlocked rear door and the keys of the vehicle were taken from the kitchen. Guardy have CCTV and they've established that the suspect was in the area at 3.29am and he was observed trying a number of door handles in vehicles in the area. So maybe you were working or had dash cam uh, out in your vehicle, you may have had dash cam, it may have p- picked something up for this time, 3.29am on the 23rd of October.
1: Now, a uh, burglary at a pub in Summerhill.
10: Yes, this was the 20th of October and it occurred in a pub in Munalvi in County Meath at approximately 12.30am and a number of actual beer kegs were taken from the pub. Gardaí are investigating but they have uh, found that a white Ford Transit, a 08D Ford Transit was used to transport the kegs from the scene. Perhaps you saw this transit in the Manalvi area of County Meath on the 20th of October. And if you did, please contact Trim Garda station.
1: Now, I believe Garda in the Meath area have noticed, if you like, a a notable trend, an increase in uh, the theft of vehicles.
10: Well, it's actually thefts from vehicles. Yeah, we have seen uh, a number of cars broken into. We'll start first with the 18th of October on the North Strand here in Drogheda. There was a parked van uh, on the North Strand. Its window was smashed and there was tools taken from the van. Then on the 19th in Dunamore area of Navan, a number of tools were taken from a parked trailer between midday and 8pm. On the 19th of October then we have in Maple Drive housing estate in Kells, a spare wheel was actually forcibly removed from a camper van. And then on the 19th, we had two vehicles parked in Dunsany area and both of the vehicles had their windows smashed and a number of items taken. We'd just like to advise vehicle owners to never leave valuables in their car and as much as they can to secure their property.
1: Now, uh, there's a renewed appeal for a missing person uh, in Meath.
10: That's right. Guardian Navin are renewing their appeal for the public's assistance in tracing the whereabouts of 43-year-old Mark Duffy, Mark was last seen in Johnstown area of Navon on Monday the 3rd of October. Mark is described as being 5 foot 8 in height, of broad build, with brown hair and blue eyes. And if anybody has any information on Mark or his whereabouts, we would urgently ask you to contact Navan Garda Station with the information.
1: OK, that's uh, Sharon White there from RD Station joining us there this morning in studio with uh, what's the latest, uh, if if you like, bad news in relation to crime in the Loudmead area. Thank you very much indeed uh, for coming in. Just before we wrap up, regarding women priests, Anne doesn't understand why the Catholic Church won't allow for female priests. There are lots of women out there who are willing to be ordained and this is the obvious way to help the dwindling priests' numbers. Barry was in touch to say the Church needs to drag itself into this century if it wants to gain back followers. It's too outdated. Tom was in touch from Trim. Ken, so We have another Prime Minister in the UK. How long is this one going to last? Can't believe there wasn't a general election. And regarding refugee accommodation, Sarah from Drogheda was in touch. If we are accepting Ukrainians into Ireland, then we should be able to provide them with whatever they need, including accommodation. We need to remember that they are fleeing a war zone and deserve our compassion. Now, before we wrap up, it's a sad day here in LMFM, particularly on the Michael Reid Show, because after eight years in the job, our producer, Marie Kierans is leaving LMFM today. Now, we want to take this opportunity to wish Marie well and to thank her for her dedicated service since 2014. It's not easy being a producer. It can be a very stressful job at times. And indeed, the listener might not be aware that many hours are spent deciding what items should be featured on the programme interviewees interviewees have to be sought and sometimes when it suits them, it doesn't suit us and therefore others have to be chased and persuaded to come on air and occasionally at the very last minute. And deal as one programme ends, just like now, the producer and the researcher have to start the process all over again to fill the next day's programme with content depending on the news and current affairs issues of the moment. So, Marie... On behalf of all the team, we want to thank you for your commitment and professionalism and to wish you well for the future. I'm nearly eight years saying this. So I just want to say to wish you well. No more early starts. Enjoy the lie-ins. And for the very last time, let's just say this programme was produced by Maria Kearans, Maggie Maguire Research, Chris Murray was on sound, Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning. And until tomorrow, when Maggie will be in charge, it's bye for
0: now the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie lmfm podcasts with cnc carpets we bring the showroom to you or book a new showroom appointment on 087-660-4237